Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. Uh, in the last episode of the series this week, we started off by talking about a couple different dream worlds. We talked about Lovecraft with Kadath and Ulther and the Plateau of Lang. Mm-hmm. We talked about Borges and his circular ruins. The one I immediately turned to is a comic book one. Yeah. Uh, it is Little Nemo in Slumberland. Have you ever read these before? I've never read them, no. <clears throat> They're by uh, Windsor McKay. There were these great turn-of-the-century comic strips that appeared in uh, newspapers. And they were these huge comic strips, too, not like the ones that we're used to nowadays. But mm-hmm. every one of them began with this kid named Nemo falling asleep, falling into a dream world, having an adventure, and then waking up in the very last panel. So I always think of Little Nemo in Slumberland. But then... Uh, we, I guess, should acknowledge that that Doctor Strange movie is coming out in the, oh, yeah. the next month or two. And Marvel has their own, like, dream universe. And there's, like, like a major Doctor Strange villain is Nightmare. He's, like, huh. a personification of nightmares. Be interesting to what ex- see to what extent they incorporate dreams into yeah, that. Yeah. Like they're going a whole, like, the whole quantum science sort of angle. Yeah, I don't know. I'm curious, too. I mean, uh, a lot of the interviews about that movie have, have talked about you know, how they're going to explore alternate realities and things like that. So we'll see. We'll see. Maybe, maybe nightmare in the dream realms will be in Dr. Strange two or something (laughs) like that. If it does well enough. Uh, but then of course there's wonderland, there's Oz, there's even the matrix is kind of like a dream world, right? That is uh, something, something to, to, that keep coming, kept coming up for me is that to a large extent, Virtual reality is the new dream world, and a lot of these yeah. shows, uh, they, they, they kind of you can you can sort of uh, trade them in and out in, in their treatment of dreams or virtuality. Yeah, and with the virtual reality thing, like it kind of makes me think of um, the very popular '90s comic, The Sandman, the Neil Gaiman oh, yeah. Sandman uh, book. There's there's also sort of like an, a major aspect of like confronting reality. We talked about this in the last episode. What's mm-hmm. real? What's not? How do you know when you're in a dream? That's a very common trope in dream fiction. Yeah. Um, one that instantly comes to mind too is 1984's Dreamscape. Did you ever see this? No, I haven't oh, seen that it's one. It's pretty great. It has some, some wonderful effects. There's a yeah. guy that like turns into a serpent in the dream. It's, okay. Uh, it's pretty cool. Um, there's dream- Nightmare on Elm Street. I don't think he's ever been given the, a really a neuroscientific treatment, um, which I think would be interesting. Like after I saw Inception, yeah, the first time I was like, "This is pretty good," but I would like to see a, an Inception Nightmare on Elm Street crossover. There's your reboot for Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. didn't they? They tried that a couple of years ago and it didn't quite work out. I I love the the reboot, but but yeah, most yeah. people did not like it. Yeah. Um, another piece of fiction that comes to mind, uh, my uh, my the uh, fantasy series I'm obsessed with. By R. Scott Baker, there's um, there there are these group. There's a group of sorcerers in it, okay. um, and they are known as the the Mandate, and they are carrying on this tradition of warning the world about this uh, this threat that uh, that is in the far north that was uh, was fought and defeated in a huge, nearly catastrophic war centuries and centuries ago, okay. and they they're warning everyone they could come back, and every as part of their initiation. Each one of these mandate sorcerers uh, uh, ab- absorbs the dreams of the school's founder, Seswatha. So uh-huh. every night they're plagued with nightmares of this first great war, the first apocalypse. So that then, then in the waking war, they have this this fresh and intense um, 
reminder of why they need to warn everyone. That reminds me of two things of I mean, no, I'm going to try not to spoil it too much, but game of Thrones, mm-hmm. there's a lot of that going on in there with a uh, brand. Yeah. He's having these like prophetic dreams. Oh yeah. They get into some very weird space that I'm not, I, I think it's still, they're still developing. They're still yeah. unrolling exactly how dreams work in that world. And then, uh, we're going to talk about it in this episode, but various tribes around the world mm-hmm. that, that have dreams as like a major important part of their culture and how they decide to do things as a community. Yeah. All right. Before we move on, we need to get a little bit of, uh, house cleaning out of the way. Yeah. So this week's episodes, if uh, you haven't listened to the previous one, are sponsored by Falling Water, which is a new TV show coming out uh, on October 13th on USA Network. They approached us about working together. Yeah. They said, hey, we'd like to sponsor a couple episodes on dreams. And we said, well, that's great because we would love to do a couple of episodes on dreams. Uh, and we, we've covered this topic in the past. We'll cover it again in the future. So it's it's a perfect match. We'll talk more about it in the sponsor breaks, but uh, and I don't want to spoil it too much. Falling Water is the science fiction mystery about entering other people's dreams. This episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, though, is going to be about Carl Jung, the collective unconscious, and the current science of linked dreaming. And like last episode, uh, we were put in touch with Dr. Moran Serf, who's a neuroscientist, and we're going to touch base with him at the end of this episode and talk to him about some of the ideas and research that we're throwing around uh, in these in, this, in the pair of these episodes. Yeah, so we're going to talk about the collective unconscious and Jung. We're going to talk about conjoined and shared dreaming. Uh, it should be quite an experience. But let's let's start with Carl Jung and the collective unconscious. And I'm going to defer to you a lot in this section because I know this is this is more your area of expertise. Oh, I, I wouldn't say that. But yeah, when I was in grad school, Jung came up a lot. One of my um, one of the professors that was on my thesis committee is very much in the Jungian school of thought. Mm-hmm. And he was constantly trying to invoke young and collective un- unconscious and archetypes into my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other professors, like many in academia, didn't think that there was a legitimate foundation for Young's work. <laughs> and so they sort of pushed against that. But yeah, I have some familiarity with him. So let's touch base with him. Uh, Young was a Swiss psychiatrist who founded what's known as analytic psychology. He's known mainly for the descriptions of extroverted and introverted personalities and his theory that there is an underlying universal understanding of symbolic representations. Most of this work that we're going to refer to was in the early part of the 20th century. Now, you're probably thinking of Sigmund Freud. Well, yeah, he and Sigmund Freud met in 1907. They began as collaborators, but they eventually had intellectual disagreements and disliked one another's approaches to psychoanalysis. Jung himself felt he was more about putting humans in a historical context and finding the meaning and dignity of their lives in the universe. So he was a pretty metaphysical guy. Yeah, I, you know, I haven't seen this film, but, uh, Cronenberg's, uh, David Cronenberg's 2011 film, A Dangerous Mind, yeah. has Michael Fassbender as Jung and, uh, Viggo Mortensen as Freud. I, it looked, I mean, like I was totally on board and that movie just kind of came and went and I haven't remembered to watch it. I think I, I distinctly remember when it came out and saying, ooh, that looks good, but maybe a little serious. Yeah. I'll come back to that when I'm in the mood for a serious movie. Yeah. And I'm so rarely in the mood for a serious good movie. <laughs> I, I tend to go for goofy, uh, 
or bad movies these days. <laughs> but I'll come back to this one at some point. Yeah. Uh, and you know, another popular cultural tie-in that, uh, for me anyway, is I'm quite fond of the Peter Gabriel song from 1982, Rhythm of the Heat. Okay. Uh, which has a, an excellent, like, accelerating drum beat. Uh, but, uh, in, in lyrics that say, like, the rhythm is around me, the rhythm has control, the rhythm is inside me, the rhythm has my soul. And apparently this is, he based the lyrics here and the, the song structure itself on Carl Jung's experiences while observing a group, uh, of nocturnal, uh, ritual dancers in, the, in the Sudan. So this is one of the things about Jung that I didn't really know until doing the research for this episode. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was pretty well traveled. Yeah. It wasn't like he was just sitting at home spitting these theories out and not like applying them to the real world. He was observing a lot of, I guess, anthropological, mm-hmm. uh, ways that the collective unconscious may manifest. Yeah. I mean, a lot of academics, uh, certainly of his time, even would have been Perfectly happy to just remain in the in their study and write all this, but he went out in the field. So apparently, he found something dark and primal and irresistible in the accelerating rhythm that the these individuals were creating, and he, he feared it was going to possess him that he might be sucked into their collective psychological experience. Huh. And here's a, here's a quote from what he said: "The natives easily fall into a virtual state of possession. That was the case. Now, as eleven o'clock approached, their excitement began to get out of bounds. The dancers were being transformed into a wild horde and." I became worried about how it would end. Well, so let's we're going to try to keep it brief because honestly, and I wouldn't be surprised if this already exists out there, but you could have an entire podcast dedicated to Young. Oh, yeah. Um, But we've only got so much time here. Here's a brief look at his psychological theories. He began working with word association to uncover groups of emotionally charged ideas that were stored in people. Uh, he coined these terms. This is the term complex that we use nowadays. And he connected this to a psychosomatic theory about schizophrenia in which he thought complexes influenced our biochemistry, which then subsequently led to mental illness. He also brought about the term, which you've probably heard about, individuation. Uh, he thought that despite a normal life, All people undergo a developmental journey that is signposted for them by archetypal images. Now, if you listen to our episode on myth that we did a couple months ago, we we delved into that quite a bit. We we talked about more about Jung's archetypal work and symbolic work than the collective unconscious, but it's there, too. And at the end of his life, he theorized that the more uncertain we are about ourselves, the more we have kinship with all things, because... Everyone is uncertain from, I don't know, a squirrel out in the yard (laughs) to me in this podcast studio. Uh, And he said the alienation that he received from the science community, uh, which I referred to earlier, uh, that manifested as what he called an unexpected unfamiliarity within himself. So this kind of brought that about for him. Now, archetypes and myth, big one, right? And Mm -hmm. I said we talked about earlier. If you if you weren't there for that episode, here's a, a quick breakdown. He became increasingly interested in the connection between human psychology and our myths folklore and fairy tales, and he began to interpret thought processes as a result of mythological symbolism. The collective unconscious, which we're going to talk about a lot today, was how these archetypal images manifested, despite cultural differences around the world, right? Like people in a tribe in the Amazon are having very similar archetypal images to uh, somebody in London, for instance. 
<clears throat> his evidence was that there are strong parallels in dream imagery across all these different cultures. And collective unconscious represented a form of the unconscious mind, memories and impulses that we're not aware of. That's what he's referring to when he says unconscious. He thought that that was common to all of mankind as a whole and originated with our inherited structure of the brain. So he thought of it as being like a biological structure of the brain that all humans shared. So in, in other words, it it's the aspect of your psyche that stems not from personal experience and conditioning, that's personal unconsciousness, but from everything that came before in the conscious experience of humanity. It's not a personal acquisition, but a psychic heritage. It's not the realm of complexes, but of archetypes. It's the deep, dark waters, and the personal consciousness is the sunlit shallows. Yeah, and I want to touch on this briefly, too. Jung wasn't entirely consistent with how he regarded collective unconscious. Uh, so for instance, sometimes he thought of it as being connected to genetics, more biological, like mm-hmm. I was saying earlier. Then other times he would talk about it as being a demonstration of communion with something divine, a space outside of ourselves that we all access. Uh, similar to the, when we were just talking about Frederick Van Eden in our last episode, mm-hmm. it's kind of something outside of ourselves that's influencing our dreams. So it's not quite easy to pin down Young on like what, you know, what he's talking about here. Is he just talking about collective unconscious as like being a, a biological phenomenon we all share? Or is it like he really believes in some kind of astral space that we all access together? Or, you know, it, just in reading some of his stuff about uh, encountering the drummers um, and, uh, and and the rhythm, and, and then looking at this, it seems like he was a guy that was was very open yeah. uh, about not only his his own uncertainties, but but open to how everything might actually connect. So he had this idea of the the unconscious, the collective unconscious uh, that that he very much believed in, and he believed it had validity to it, but was perhaps open to exactly how it connected with the universe. I think so. Yeah, I think he was primarily concerned with the. Not just the human project, but sort of like the universal project, mm. right? And he wanted to know what, maybe <laughs> the ultimate question, like, what am I doing here? What, the, the, it's very existential, right? Now, speaking of that question, what am I doing here? One might very well ask that question about the collective unconscious. What, what's the possible application for all of this aside from just, uh, you know, staring into your own navel? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And a lot of academics, including some on my <laughs> thesis committee would have asked that question. Well, Jung's theories are more prevalent than any application of his actual I- ideas, uh, especially when we're talking about therapeutic practice of psychology. But his word association test that I mentioned, that's become a standard for clinical psychology with rating scales that have been designed to test personality. I think a lot of us have taken some. So this would be like the therapist is saying, like, father, king, mother, these words, and you tell them what what they mean to you? I think so, yeah. But I think it's I think maybe that's closer to what he was doing. And that's evolved into sort of a more complex uh, version of the test. Okay. More of, more like the BuzzFeed type quiz of like, what Game of Thrones character are you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, that's really been his influences okay. on BuzzFeed quizzes. <laughs> uh, individuation, which I mentioned earlier, that's been incorporated into many theories on personality development and the myth archetype theories have been partially embraced by those who are looking to understand humans as symbol using beings. And this is in a lot of different disciplines, communication 
communication, art, philosophy, and definitely in linguistics. Uh, it led to Joseph Campbell, who we also talked about in that myth episode, and his whole hero's journey theory, which has been very popularized. A lot of people have heard probably more about the hero's journey than they've heard about Jung. Uh, it was popularized mainly by Star Wars uh, and George Lucas talking about having used it uh, while he was writing the scripts for those. There's countless books on storytelling that also talk about the hero's journey being like the inherent narrative that we all turn to. Um, you know, speaking of narratives, I know that we have some Dune fans uh, listening to the episode, fans of uh, Frank yeah. Herbert's Dune and and uh, and many of them, uh, too, also fans of uh, Brian Herbert's work um, continuing on with that universe. But. In the Dune novel, the, the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood, uh, they possess a collective memory that was heavily based on Jung's collective unconscious. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I knew there was some connection, but I had not researched it to just the other day to see, like, if there was definite connective mm-hmm. tissue there. Did that come up when you and Joe did the Dune episode? We didn't get into a lot of the heavier, like, psychological, philosophical stuff as mm-hmm. much. I mean, we certainly could. There's, there's actually a whole book out there called The Philosophy of Dune. Right. But um, but it's certainly an area we could explore. Yeah. Yeah. So in the book, this uh, gives the Bene Gesserit inborn abilities, memories and modes of behavior. And at key points in the novels, it also opens up the individual to harmful past lives, essentially. And according to to Frank Herbert's son, Brian, uh, he had studied the work of Jung and as well. And also had studied the work of Jung's associate, Dr. Joseph be Ryan. So you might be listening to this and saying, okay, this young character, I've heard of him before. This all sounds interesting. D- did he have any evidence for all this? Well, his main evidence was what I mentioned earlier, the strong parallels in dream imagery across different cultures. Mm-hmm. That's mainly what he stuck to. Um, and, and that's why there's a lot of criticism leveled against him. Yeah. I mean, if your own, if your main evidence is essentially based in the world of dream. Yeah. Um, it's it's hard. It's, it, you can see where that would be a problem, especially, you know, as we talked about in last episode, you can't always rely on human beings talking about their memories of their dreams because memories are inherently unreliable. Yeah, because we've, we're, if we're engaging in that process where we take the nonsense of memories. Potentially, this is one view of it. If yeah. you take the nonsense of dreams and then you're recoding it into some new form that's more narrative or more symbolic. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's a several step process. It's not all housed in the dream world. And you could also, you could say that the parallels between one, uh, uh, one people's archetypes and another, you could say that these parallels uh, could just easily represent universal aspects of the human experience or, or even the evolution of human consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and for that, you wouldn't necessarily need this collective unconscious. We talked about this in the myth episode, too, that there's like a couple of other people have proposed similar theories, one of which is uh, Alan Moore, mm-hmm. uh, comics and now n- novelist have uh, his new novel, uh, Jer- Jerusalem, just came out. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, he has this uh, theory of what he calls idea space, which is very similar to the Jungian idea. But again, a lot of people say Alan Moore's a crackpot. So. Who knows? Now, why would they say Young's a crackpot? Why would they say Alan Moore's a crackpot? Well, here are some criticisms that are leveled against Young. Because of his interest in connecting his theories to religion and cultural myth, he's considered an embarrassment by many people in the psychology discipline. Uh, I mentioned earlier my own experience with this mm-hmm. uh, in my thesis. 
Freudians, even in, in the psycho- psychology discipline, they say his archetypes are only metaphysical ideas and their existence can't be proven, so why bother? He's also criticized for failing to offer any kind of coherent model for po- personality development. And then others just blatantly dismiss him as being a mystic crackpot because he doesn't offer any experimental evidence for his observations. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to go beyond Jung and and into the collective unconscious. And then we will enter into the world of dreams again. All right, we're back. So, morphic resonance. This sounds, uh, th- th- here's a new term for this episode. Uh, how does this tie into the collective unconscious? Okay, so we're gonna go, this is, uh, this is like, you know how there's Star Trek Beyond? This is Young Beyond. Okay. So these are, um, ideas that tie in to Young's collective unconscious, but are a little different. Morphic resonance was primarily advocated for by a guy named Rupert Sheldrake, and he was formerly a recognized scholar in biochemistry. He was a winner of his university's botany prize, a Harvard scholar. He was basically a well-renowned academic. Now he's shunned by the scientific community and he writes about the limitations of contemporary scientific thought as being dogmatism. It reminded me of our uh, episode on cargo cult science. Ah. His example of this, and I talked about this briefly in the last episode, his nemesis is Richard Dawkins, uh, the guy who came up with the, uh, well, a lot of, a lot of things, but mainly, uh, mimetic theory. Uh, and he's interested in the influence of cosmology on evolution. In this, he also thinks that the laws of nature themselves are prone to evolution. So we can't necessarily trust the laws of nature because oh. they're they're malleable. They're changing. That does sound problematic. Yeah. And he points to dark matter as being an example of this because nothing in our science can begin to explain it. And I, I'm just going to give a little stuff to blow your mind uh, insight into that. How many times have we sat around and t- said, we should do an episode on dark matter? And then we start looking into it and we're like, oh, boy. This is tough. It's, uh, it's definitely, we often refer to these as the, uh, the swimming pool topics. Yeah. Uh, because it's like a swimming pool where there's a, there's a deep drop off between the shallow and the deep end. It's not a gradual yeah. zero entry, uh, scenario. Uh, so th- those, those topics can be a little intimidating to go after, but they, they can be fulfilling. So we'll, maybe we'll get around to dark matter at some point. Yeah. One day. Sheldrake himself as a child was fascinated with pigeons. And this is important. I'm not just bringing up, you know, something. <laughs> he liked, yeah. uh, he especially liked that you could release them far away from home and yet they would always make their way back, right? Kind of like the, uh, Ravens in Game of Thrones. They always find their way back. That's why we call them homing pigeons. In school, he realized science couldn't yet explain homing pigeons and they just talked about it as being kind of an unobservable mystery. So he became interested in the idea that biology and heredity were similar to Jung's collective unconscious and that there is a shared memory within 
species. This was influenced by Henri Bergson's idea that memory isn't stored in our brain. as It's instead a part of time and space. Memory isn't in us, again. It's, it's external to us. So these ideas grew for Sheldrake when he tried, what do you think? Psychedelics, yeah. another psychedelic avenger here, uh, and transcendental meditation. Sheldrake now believes memory is a function of time and not matter, matter meaning our brains, and that it's shared by all living things. He calls this sharing morphogenetics, and now he researches phenomena that science dismisses. So, for example... How dogs know when their owners are coming home. You know that? Like when a, a dog will know before you get to the front door. Uh-huh. Maybe it's because their hearing's a lot better than ours. Yeah, that would be my first guess. But, but he's investigating that it might have some kind of morphic resonance. Another one is our human ability to predict when we're being stared at from a distance. Oh, now there's there's a lot of interesting science to this. We actually have an older episode on the science oh, of yeah. staring. And I know uh, it's one that Joe has wanted to re- revisit. Well, this reminds me, again, I go back to these comic book examples. Have you ever read Animal Man, the DC comic character? I haven't got, I haven't got around to that one. That one's on the list. It's yet another, uh, Grant Morrison didn't create him, but Grant Morrison had a great run Mm -hmm. on Animal Man. And Animal Man as a character is able to tap into what are called morphic fields that allow him to sort of access these species memories. Now that I've read this, I have to think that, uh, the people working on Animal Man, especially Morrison, were influenced by Sheldrake. Uh, but his, so Sheldrake's hope is that all of this will lead to a moment of what he calls coming out in science, where people will be able to discuss these topics without any fear of repercussions. So in 2008, he was actually attacked at a conference by a paranoid schizophrenic with a knife. So oh, that's, that's horrible. Yeah, that's how far this like weird division goes between like people who deem themselves scientific and people who uh and, and what they see as a pseudoscience, right? That like it went so far as it clearly provoked this this mentally ill man into physically attacking him, but luckily he lived through it. Now to to return to the collective unconscious and the, the the dream world. Um, of course, the idea of of there being a realm of dreams or even a shared realm of dreams uh, is not is, is not something that uh, that Jung or, or anyone else in necessarily invented. I mean, no. this has been something that has been explored in older modes of belief for a time. I mean, certainly there are plenty of examples where you have prophetic dreams and dream communication yeah. that is occurring between, a, especially between a divine entity and a human. But we also have these ideas of, of a shared space. Yeah, and we most often see those now in tribal dream worlds. So Jung himself actually, I was mentioning how he kind of traveled around the world. Mm-hmm. He visited the East African Elgani tribe in uh, Kenya in 1925. And this is where he came up with a term he used called big dreams because the Elgani called their collective dreams big dreams. And this was where the dreamer was dreaming for their whole community and perhaps the whole world. It's kind of a shamanic style that matched Jung's theories very well. So later on, he would come to see this as kind of like a collective memory 
uh, or bodily expression that all humans shared due to biology. Mm-hmm. So again, there, this time he's leaning on the biology thing. Uh, in the late 1960s, Catholic missionaries also discovered the Akuar tribe in the deep Amazon. Uh, and this is a tribe that are semi-nomadic. They number around 11,000 people. When asked how they had survived in the harsh Amazon for so long, they said it was because of the guidance that they had received in the spirit world while they were dreaming. So now they're referred to as the dream people of the Amazon because they have this unique daily ritual they call Weusa. Uh, or it translates into dream sharing. So here's how it works. Every day they get up early, like 3, 4 a.m. early, and they gather in family units around their communal fire, and they consume a special tea and drink it so much that they end up vomiting. So it's a sort of cleansing, purging part of the ritual. So minus the tea, this is is kind of a... A ritual that a lot of uh, people in America take part in, especially around uh, Mardi Gras. <laughs> yeah, yeah, except for where it's going next. I don't know if people at Mardi Gras uh, sit around and do this next. So you've got rid of that negative energy from vomiting up your tea. Then everybody takes turns telling each other what they remember from their dreams because they believe the dreams each contain fragments of important messages from their spirit elders or a powerful rainforest spirit known as Erutam. Uh, and this spirit is sometimes seen as being manifested as sort of like an avatar, as a panther or a boa constrictor. Okay. So the idea here is the interpreting of these dreams is really important since no person is getting all the information individually. It's going out to everybody in fragments. So a village elder tries to piece all this together and the primary instruction that these tribes have gained from all of this is basically live in harmony with nature. Uh, so to give you some examples of this, the more tangible actions that they've taken from their collective dreams include finding plants that they need in the forest for medicine and then figuring out how to prepare those plants as medicine and administering certain dosages. Hmm. So that seems very interesting. Uh, as children... They're actually taught that nightmares result in personal growth. So when you're having a nightmare, you should move toward the threat in your nightmare so that you can conquer your fear and realize the dream's true message. Wow, that ties in rather nicely with the demon dream that uh, Frederick von Eden uh, defined, the yeah. idea that you're you're fighting the, the, the demon and overcoming it. And then, of course, that ties in with some of the theories about dream that we have today in which they are they're simulations or they are a problem-solving scenario. Yeah, so, and again, because of these similarities, it, it begs the question, you know, let's think like Jung, like, is this because human beings are biologically all having these same experiences or is it because we're accessing something outside of ourselves? It, it also seems like this is such a, a far more modern approach to dreaming than anything I, we have in like a Western, certainly Christian tradition where... Yeah. Like if you're having a demonic dream, then it's it's something, you know, it's often like, oh, it's it's either an actual demon or something about your personal sin that you should feel bad about. But there's we don't have like a robust system of dealing with nightmares in our culture. Well, so you remember in the last episode we were talking about lucid dreaming and I was saying like, I just like it's just not for me, (laughs) you know, mainly because like Mm -hmm. I'm just not interested in that. I just want the process to play out. Well, and maybe like I'm unimaginative in this way, but uh. Similarly, like in modern society, who likes listening to somebody else's dream? 
right? Like I, mm-hmm. so I was just listening to, um, uh, this podcast called Nerdette and they did an episode where they talked to a dream interpreter. And the funny bit, like at the beginning, the two hosts were talking to each other and one host was like, I'm going to tell you about my dream. And the other host was like, no, I don't want to hear about your dream. And she said, go talk to this dream interpreter. And then they did that. Uh-huh. I'm the same way. Like people go, Hey, I had this crazy dream last night. Let's try to unpack it. Right. And I go, eh, okay. See, I, I feel the, the opposite on this. And, and I, and I also, I often encounter that, uh, that, that argument that, that people don't like hearing about other people's dreams. Mm-hmm. Like the most, the most, uh, startling or the most noteworthy example of this for me was when I, uh, read, I don't know if it was, it was in the movie too, but it was certainly when I read Cormac McCarthy's No Country for Old Men. Ah, yeah. There's a part where, um, the sheriff character played by Tommy Lee Jones in the movie, he's, he mentions to his wife that he had this dream and he says nobody wants to hear about anybody's dream. Yeah. But then goes on to share this really potent dream that ties into the whole thematic structure of the book. Yeah. Because uh, so cl- clearly like Cormac McCarthy can't actually believe that because right. he uses a dream all the time to add additional insight. And as a culture, like, we love TV shows about dreams. We do. We, we <laughs> you know, uh, we, we mentioned all these v- different fictional properties that, uh, that have existed or will exist very soon in, in the case of the, t- the TV show. Uh, and we clearly like to hear about those dreams. And I find in my own experience, I, I like to hear about other people's dreams because it gives me a little insight into how their mind works. Yeah. So all of this is making me think like my reaction to this is very much like a sort of modern contemporary one, which is like, uh, let's stay closed off from our dreams, like mm-hmm. especially other people's dreams Let's exist in the waking world. Right. Whereas bring it back to the Aquar. I mean, it seems like this, it, like you said, it seems like such a mature way mm-hmm. to experience these and such a like, like, man, like, I, I don't think I've ever had a communal experience like that where like, oh, my family, we all just sit around uh, <laughs> the living room and have have tea. I mean, other than the vomiting part, but like have tea and sit around and talk about what we thought about last night. You know, yeah. um, it, it, there's something kind of beautiful about it. Now, I do have to say. If if we if like a workplace made everybody come in on a Monday oh morning and instead of brainstorming ideas, everyone shared their dreams. OK, I could see dreams and getting a little old in that, in that scenario. Yeah. But like on a, on, a, on a personal, like interpersonal level, I tend to like hearing about people's dreams. Well, I mean, what we're getting into here is basically like this isn't unique to that one specific tribe. Right. Mm-hmm. But they go a step further. They equate reality with dreaming rather than with being awake. They they also believe that all inner qualities that make an individual unique exist separate from the physical brain. Instead, when they dream, their soul enters a multiverse where they learn all the things that are going on in the world. Uh-huh. This allows them theoretically to move through time though their focus is mainly on improving the future so they mainly in their dreams try to look at the future rather than the past you know this sounds like a dream world scenario that would fit in with what we're seeing on game of thrones totally yeah totally so they're basically they try to alter their dreams and if an elder interprets something bad is coming they're going to try to as a community sort of alter that dream wise but also by their behaviors in waking life uh and yes they, like many of the other people we've spoken about in this series, use hallucinogens to provoke these vision quests. Here's a major example of a way that this has affected their society. They had a dream, uh, or dream interpretation that they would see conflict with the peoples of the north. 
in Waking Life, all of their clans united and called upon their Catholic missionary friends to assist them because they were worried about this. And it turned out, a couple of years later, Ecuador and Peru were about to allow oil companies to come in and slash and burn the part of the Amazon that this tribe lived in. Hmm. So they see this as part of their long-building prophecy. And the prophecy basically goes like this. Our people, us, the northerners, we're called the people of the eagle, and their people are called the people of the condor. And rather than fighting over the Amazon, they want that they, their prophecy is that we're all going to unite and fly together, uh-huh. which immediately made me think of lucid dreaming. Oh, yeah. How else are you going to fly? Now, of course, in Australian Aboriginal mythology, there is also this concept of the dream time, uh, which is a bit more complex than a mere dream world. But and it has to do has to do with an ancient time of the gods and the way that that time sort of echoes through the current life of ritual. But but there is a component of dream to it. So, hey, we, we've we've discussed Jung and his uh, take on everything. Yeah. Let's get into a little bit of Freud. Yeah, this is the other, the flip side of the coin. So Freud and Jung famously didn't get along so much so they made a movie about it. Freud, however, uh, wrote about dream telepathy in a piece called Dreams and Telepathy. <laughs> uh, and he says that there, yeah, maybe there's a theoretical connection between dreams and telepathy in this, but he says he doesn't actually believe they're connected. He sees dreams as being, of course he does, something that's in our unconscious. Telepathy to him, though, wouldn't alter a dream since it would come from an external source, right? Yeah. Now, it's interesting the whole like how how Freud looked at dreams. Mm. I was reading that uh, that like he believed that we had trouble remembering content from our dreams in large part because our dreams were were pulling out things we were uncomfortable with. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, then he went on to write in another piece called The Occult Significance of Dreams. This is the the Freud we don't hear often about. Yeah. Um, in this book, he discusses telepathic or prophetic dreams, and he doesn't dismiss the idea entirely. And it, he seems to indicate that, hey, you know, maybe these could be true. Maybe it's a real thing. Uh, since this, many experiments have been conducted to see if there is a connection, if there is something actually going on with what Freud coined as dream telepathy. Sometimes this kind of parapsychology is referred to, though, as the third rail of psychology. So remember how I was referring to Jung and how he's often dismissed in academia? Mm-hmm. Of course, this stuff gets the same treatment. Uh, many people treat it as pseudoscience. They think it's going to ruin your career, so they try to stay away from it. Hence, it's very difficult to find quote-unquote, legitimate sources on this topic, right? Like, usually we're looking for peer-reviewed research papers for the episodes that we do. Uh-huh. And it was a little more difficult uh, on stuff like this because uh, no peer-reviewed journal is going to publish something about dream telepathy and there's unless there's, like, super concrete evidence. Yeah, so you're, the sources that you're, you end up going to in a lot of, a lot of cases, there's a steep drop-off in uh, believability and... and uh, and even like the the in rigors of uh, of research. Well, there's uh, two fairly recent studies that I think are worth citing here. There's Stanley Krippner and Montague Ullman in the 1970s and 80s. They were at the I think it's May Minotti's Medical Center in Brooklyn. Sorry if I'm getting that wrong. Uh, they were testing for dream telepathy there, and they were verifying it with an EEG. Everything I read about these guys immediately made me think that they were the inspiration for Ghostbusters. Huh. It, so, so it, with this dream tele- telepathy, though, yeah. uh, we're talking about the uh, supposed ability of one individual to speak to another through dream. 
Exactly. Yeah. Okay. That they could, uh, speak through dreams and share dreams without a uh, technological hookup. Like we talked about uh-huh. with Dr. Serif. Uh, and then in 2013, there was a study by Carlisle Smith at Trent university in Ontario. And he showed students photos of an individual and he asked them to dream about the problems of that particular person. Wasn't mm-hmm. necessarily a person that they'd ever met before. Now the senders and the receivers identities were totally unknown, even to the experimenters. The first experiment was about their health. The second was about their life problems. In post analysis, Carlisle Smith found that there were more what he referred to as hits than controls, where an image or concept from the person's dream correlated to the real problems of the individual sender. Hmm. Now, you can take this with a grain of salt, too, I suppose. Right. Like in the same way as like fortune cookies. Right. Like like uh, there's a certain percentage that like a fortune cookie is vague enough that almost all of us will. I guess, like, see a little bit of ourselves in it, identify. Oh, yeah, it, yeah. Right? This gets into the foyer effect that uh, Joe and I did an episode on a while back. Mm. Where if you have, a, like, certainly with, like, personality tests, like, if enough stuff clicks off for somebody, they'll buy into the whole package. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's similar to what we're dealing with with mutual dreaming here, too. Yeah, this is the notion that uh, two lucid dreamers can share and experience the same dream. So... You find this within lucid dreaming communities, which that can sometimes be like a message board or a Reddit forum right. in some cases. Uh, but you'll find individuals who claim to have experienced this together. Sometimes you even find, at times, dubious claims of it taking place in a laboratory setting. Essentially, two or more lucid dreamers say that they encounter each other and then afterwards confirm that all three shared the same details of the encounter or the setting. So it, huh. it kind of matches up with some of these experiments uh, you were just talking about. Yeah, yeah. So it's the idea that it's an idea that feeds on notions of dream telepathy and collective unconscious to a certain extent. Uh, and it reminds me a bit of a 1993 sci-fi novel that came out uh, titled Vert, V-U-R-T, by Jeff Noon. No, I've not heard of this. Uh, it's it's really good. It's um, it involves a, a like a it's kind of a cyberpunky kind of future, except there's an, instead of technology, there's a there's a hallucinogenic drug called Vert, hmm. and it comes in feather form. So essentially, you get these multicolored feathers and you suck on them, huh. and then it allows everyone to enter into a shared alternate reality that is essentially a dream world and you can then interact with with other people who are taking vert at the same time isn't it funny how much of our fiction is based around us being able to share a reality together when we already share a reality together that is yeah and it it maybe it's just that like people inherently feel alienated from one another mhm like we have to enter some other kind of state so that we're connected yeah, I mean, certainly when people are, when there is a physical disconnect, I yeah. think, you know, it certainly makes sense. But yeah, you have plenty of times where you're, you're entering into this virtual experience with people that you, you share the, the actual experience with. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, so we've spent most of this episode talking about theories, right? Collective mm-hmm. unconsciousness, Jung, Freud, dream telepathy, mind to mind communication without wires, right? Mm-hmm. But, what about the wires? We're using <laughs> wires, right? There's yeah. technology and science to this whole thing. Yeah. And this brings us to Travelodge. <laughs> uh, you, you might not think it, but yeah, Travelodge plays a, a, an important role here. Um, so the Travelodge hotel chain, you might not think of Travelodge as a major player in futurist predictions, 
But you do see this from large future concerned companies from time to time. They'll commission some sort of a study on where what what's the future of their business, what's yeah. the future of, of life as it intersects with their business. And indeed, you see more and more companies that are devoting people and resources to future readiness. And in 2011... Travelodge commissioned noted futurist Dr. Ian Pearson to weigh in on where hotel technology is going and indeed what the experience of checking into a hotel might consist of in the year 2035. I, I, I'm absolutely on board with this. Uh, <laughs> I always sleep better in a hotel. I don't really know what it even is. the first night. Uh huh. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I some of the best experiences of sleep I've ever had have been in a hotel. Wow. I mean, I certainly uh, love our recent options. trip to New York. Yeah. When we stayed at the Yotel in yeah. Hell's Kitchen. Man, I slept great there. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe you'll sleep even better uh, in the year 2035. Hopefully. So basically what happened here is Pearson did a six month study and then he laid out his vision of a future in which nearly any surface or fabric in a hotel room may be electronically enhanced to make your stay better. So maybe they emit a particularly you know, nostalgic scent mm-hmm. or it's a virtual display. Uh, maybe it's um, it's turning your walls of the room into a scenic vista or even a room in your own home. So you feel like you're actually at home. Huh. This is kind of like what we end up talking to Dr. Seraph about. Mm-hmm. Um the idea of linked dreams or influencing your dreams by using uh, sensory applications yeah. outside. And that's exactly where Pearson goes. Because, mm. of course, you check into a hotel room. A few notable examples aside, you were probably checking in that hotel room for one key purpose, and that is to go to sleep. Right. And when we're sleeping, we dream. So Pearson's predictions deal with this a lot, uh, of not only using virtual reality and even virtual sex, which he goes into, but technologically augmented dream states. So some of the dream enhancement notions are, are fairly physical. Okay. And they're involving some of these things we've already discussed. So surfaces that, uh, that can be turned into displays and emit light. Okay. Um, Devices that emit a fragrance it's that uh, even in a, a sleeping state, you're going to process. And I go can... to bed sometimes at night with that. Uh, my wife and I have this little device. Actually, maybe this is where the idea for this device came from. You put like uh, various scented oils into it and it p- puts a spray out in oh, yeah? the room. And then the device itself, another setting on it can make it glow. So the room has like a particular huh. uh, hue to the color. Oh, of that's it. nice. Yeah. So, so yeah, some of the the technology here is is along that those lines, but also special PJs that use yarns uh, that contract under electric fields. I, I hope those are disposable uh, <laughs> electronic PJs. I don't know that I would want to wear somebody else's PJs. Well, I'm, I'm guessing they fumigate them, but uh, probably yeah. And then on top of that, you can add in some heating and cooling elements. So essentially, you have a garment. That can, you know, hug you, massage you, and in, and in doing so. It's like a thunder shirt. Yeah, like a thunder shirt that is going to influence your dreams, linking, uh, imagery and sound and even physicality to create a fully tactile dreamscape. Hmm. So uh, how is this going to play out? Well, he predicts that active management of our dreams through dream management systems. This will allow us to manipulate the course of our dreams, you know, basically to, to sort of prime us like, oh, I want to I want to have a dream that I'm at the ocean. So yeah. ocean sounds, okay. ocean smell piped in. Maybe somehow you program the garment or the bed itself to create that sensation of waves rolling across you and then falling away. So it's not so much as I'm going to physically incept your dream. Right. But I'm going to do everything with the environment of the hotel room to incept it for you. 
A lot of this makes me think of something that we've both covered. I think you and Julie did a previous stuff to blow your mind about this, and I've covered it elsewhere. ASMR. Yeah. I'm wondering if these people who are investigating this are looking into the effect of ASMR. There are whole ASMR video series that are all designed to make you go to sleep and wake you up. There's even a podcast. Did you know there's a whole podcast that's designed to help you go to sleep? Huh. Uh, so, some people use ours for they that. They do. But, yes. but, but ASMR, we should define this. Uh, yeah, this is, of course, that. when, <clears throat> and uh, you'll have to listen to the past episode to get the full breakdown, but uh, essentially certain people hear certain types of sounds and has an exceedingly soothing, even euphoric effect on them. And this might be the sound of someone whispering. Yeah. Uh, my wife experiences this, experiences this actually specifically with the sound of somebody drawing her uh, on a paper with pencil. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, yeah. It's very popular with the YouTube community. There's a number of YouTubers who make a living doing it, uh, mm-hmm. where they like kind of perform roles whispering into a 3d microphone and I'm very susceptible to it. It totally oh, okay. works. It, it, uh, people call it brain orgasms. It like makes your brain tingle and your spine kind of tingle down your back and stuff. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Way it totally works for me. Well, that and all of these additional dream priming techniques, they, they make a lot of sense that they, mm-hmm. they're very much grounded within like e- either current or very near technologies. But then Pearson takes it. One step farther, he says, dream linking to other people will be possible. So if a friend is dreaming at the same time, it may be possible to communicate with them via your dream. Sleepers will also be able to play games in their sleep using feedback from image recognition and emotion detection. Hmm. So he says that with the aid of brain monitoring, we'll be able to record the dreams that we're having, uh, play them back later, even continue on, on with them where we left off or experience the dream completely again. He said, says that we, we may use active contact lenses that'll, that'll, uh, that'll work along with skin connectivity monitors, uh, with the dream management software to detect a nightmare and then either change the course of your dream or wake you up. He says that dream management systems could even be used for educational or study purposes. So instead of just dreaming about whatever, you can actively do your homework in your dream. Yeah. So these are very similar to devices we talked about in the last episode, but let's just cover them again very quickly in case uh, somebody listening to this one hasn't heard about them. Yeah, because as, as as far out there as that last example from Pearson may seem, and it seems very sci-fi, uh, we see the groundwork already coming together in in current technology. So as we as we discussed in our last episode, you have uh, uh, psychophysiologist Stephen Leberge with the uh, Lucidity Institute, and he uses uh, EEGs to look into in at the electro electrical brain activity that takes place during sleep, uh, monitoring dream activity, and this has allowed the development of a number of different devices, such as the Nova Dreamer, um, which uh, looks like a cross between a sleep mask and like goggles, yeah. uh, and it detects the rapid eye movement of REM sleep and the dreams that are likely taking place underneath it and delivers flashing light cues to let the user know that, hey, you're you're having a dream right now. Wake up. Go lucid. Fly around. Do whatever you want. And as I mentioned in the last episode, uh, there's, there's another device that's been uh, advocated as doing something similar by a guy named Keith Hearn. He called it the dream machine. 
Uh, it, it was never made commercially available, but it's a similar principle, basically, that it can detect when you're dreaming uh, and then uses either like a visual or auditory cues to wake you up or let you know that you're dreaming so that you can control the dream. Yeah. Now, it's also worth noting the U.S. military has explored the use of VR goggles to help trauma stricken individuals who wake up from a nightmare and then calm them, distract them and then conceivably allow them to enter re-enter the dream world in a calmer state. Huh. And this would be, I guess, this would, this would be more of a priming system as opposed to an active dream manipulation. I wonder how well that would work together with the MDMA therapy that we talked about uh, for PTSD individuals. Yeah, I don't know. You know, you know, I don't remember reading anything in our research about MDMA's effect on dreams. Yeah. Like, yeah. And in fact, I don't think I've heard anything clinical or just interpersonal about that. Hmm. Yeah. But I can't remember. It's been a while since we did those. But yeah. yeah. Huh. So and when it comes to observing dreams, because certainly when we start talking about sharing dreams, there are a few different scenarios. Like one is one person dreams and the other one observes. Another is that both are engaged in the dream, sharing together as a collaborative effort. So in 2011, a scientist at UC Berkeley demonstrated the use of fMRI to measure the brain activity of volunteers as they watch short video clips. Then a computational model crunched the fMRI data and reproduced the images. So on uh, essentially, they would be thinking of one thing, and then this, this, they're getting an on-screen interpretation of what they are thinking. And the results are imperfect at this stage. We're talking colorful blurs, uh, a basic shape or sense of size or movement, but they match up I mean, surprisingly well, considering yeah. that the technology is doing what seemed the domain of magic in previous ages, looking into a person's mm-hmm. mind and seeing what they're thinking about, ba- breaking through that last barrier of privacy we that we to, think that we all have. We talked to Dr. Cerf about this a little bit, about another study that does something similar. And the way he describes it, it makes me think of like uh, that right now we're at low resolution mm-hmm. and we're working our way up to get to like a regular type resolution. We're not quite at a HD level yet with our dreams, yeah. but there's so they're just these blurry, grainy things that you could interpret as being, you know, visuals. Yeah. At the time of this uh, initial study, the researchers predicted that we were just a few decades away from enabling people to read or view another individual's thoughts and intentions and ultimately even their dreams, allowing us to to, to play back a dream and edge a little closer to some of Ian Pearson's predictions. Hmm. All right. But what about so I'm thinking of something we talk about on a lot of how stuff works shows brain computer interfaces. You and Joe did a whole episode on techno telepathy. Now, what about when you're like literally hooking up wires to somebody's brain? Yeah, this is a this is a, a, one of those areas where the current technology is not it's not quite up to sci-fi levels mm. uh, by any means, but it's certainly it's it's certainly close enough to where it's just it's really astounding to think that we're actually pulling some of this off. Yeah. So for years now, scientists have been developing lots of different technologies for brain computer interfaces. And in physical terms, it, it makes sense because the brain is an electrochemical machine and its activities are expressed in ways that are detectable to machines that are sensitive to electromagnetism. And, all, and you can divide the whole process up into three basic technological elements, neuroimaging, transmission and neurostimulation. Now, we've already touched on the neuroimaging a bit. We use fMRI. We use uh, uh, electroencephalography um, or uh, magnetocephalography to observe the activity. For input, you got a few different options. Certainly implanted electrodes, which would be very 
invasive, obviously, mm. but then also focused ultrasound or transcranial magnetic sim- stimulation. Mm-hmm. You put a nice, friendly electromagnet against your head, carefully align, aligned over your scalp to target a particular part of the brain, and it pulses inward to stimulate electrical activity in the targeted region of the brain. So one of the studies that I read about, and uh, it's from a Gizmodo article in 2008, it said a research team at the ATR Computational Neuroscience Laboratories in Japan were successfully able to display simple images produced in the human brain on a computer screen using these technologies. Right. Now, this is similar to what you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. We bring it up again with Dr. Serif in the interview, uh, and he says he's, he, he thinks that they repeated or maybe did like a better version of it in 2013, uh, but this is a colleague of his, so he was very familiar with this and explains mm-hmm. it. Uh, far better. But the essential gist is it converts electrical signals sent to the visual cortex into images that are then translated onto the computer screen. Uh, the way that they did, they tested this was they showed the test subjects six letters in the word neuron. And the subjects succeeded in reconstructing that word on screen with their brain. So basically it comes down to a scenario where if we can observe the what's physically going on to yeah. cause a particular dream image... If we can observe it, translate that into data, and then retranslate that back and and, and make that same uh, physical process appear in another individual's brain, we can conceivably allow two brains to communicate with each other. Yeah. We can allow brains to maybe even share a, a, share a mind state in the more f- far-fetched uh, versions of it. The one that I really like... This is obviously a science fiction scenario, although, I mean, if we've got the technology to do this, I don't see why we wouldn't hook up a human brain to an animal brain and and see what kind of interface you get there. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, because uh, just to give you an example out there for everyone where we are with this technology, experimentally, we have linked two rats. Uh, we've enabled a human to move a living rat's tail with their mind, Ooh. and we've even managed to allow limited brain-to-brain communication with humans, taking brain activity from one person and injecting brain activity into the second person. In a multinational 2014 study, uh, we had a team, the team of researchers involved use EEG caps and uh, TMS equipment. So we're talking about uh, transmagnetic stimulation, right. transcranial magnetic stimulation. Yeah. Exactly, and they use this to allow them to communicate to e- with each other using signals of numbers, lights, and colors. And they did this across a uh, across the con- across a continent. I believe it was like France to India. Wow! And in 2014, researchers at the University of Washington published a study showing that they were able to establish a technologically mediated, non-invasive brain-to-brain interface, which allowed one person to cause movement in another person's body without speech. And across the internet, that is fascinating and terrifying. Yeah, and something that we, well, I mean, you and Joe went into it pretty heavily in that techno telepathy episode, but I'm sure this is something we'll keep coming back to as more and more research is conducted in the area. It seems like you're basically talking about two two separate dreams that are correlated to a certain degree by the observation and manipulation of a dream management system. Again, two people are dreaming, and you have a computer spitting out sea salt smells at you um, or you are really experiencing the same dream the same reality two brains connected in a way that permits both dreamers to dream essentially as a single double decker brain um, 
or we work where one dreamer is, you know, essentially an observer mode, perhaps. But that idea of like two brains as one, like yeah. computing as one, like that, I, I have a hard time imagining exactly what that would be like. I mean, that's that's a level of personal connection yeah, that is beyond the human experience. Totally. I can't like and we get into this with Dr. Seraph. I, I can't imagine the physical experience. I'm trying to understand what it's like other than just like feeling electrical stimulation in the mm-hmm. brain. Um, so we turn to him for this. Uh, he's the expert in this field. Uh, we talked to him last episode, but if, you know, I'll reintroduce him here. His name is Dr. Moran Cerf. Uh, he's a professor of neuroscience and business at the Kellogg School of Management and the neuroscience program at Northwestern University. And he focuses on studying brain surgery patients, their emotions, their dreams, their behaviors. Uh, he's, he's recognized because he had a, a former career as a hacker breaking into banks, mm-hmm. uh, stealing their money and proving to them that there is security flaws in their system. So people will look at that as a great metaphor of he is now hacking into brains and dreams. So let's turn to our interview with him and get some more on what it would actually be like to share a dream state with someone else. Dr. Surf, what is your view as a scientist of Jung's collective unconscious? So the idea that uh, things in the outside world penetrate our dreams and become symbols that have meaning in our dreams is very likely. We know from studies that were done uh, not long ago, many years after Jung's theories emerged, that show that we can actually make you dream things by doing them when you're awake. So if you play Tetris a lot when you're awake, you're likely to actually dream about bricks falling from the sky on you the night after. So we know that things from the outside world penetrate our dreams. And what Jung basically said is that things in the outside world that are really important go into our dreams, and because they're important for so many people together, they're going to go into many people's dreams, and all of them are going to somehow get to experience what happens in the world in the same way. Now, now Jung didn't really have the mechanism for that, but now we know even about the mechanisms. So, for instance, we know that uh, in the month after 9-11, many people in New York had shared dreams about a, a nightmares events with planes crashing or with people uh, going through uh, horrific experiences. And this is because there was a shared experience that happened to us when we were awake, and our dreams reflect the experience that our awake brain goes through, so it also went into many people's dreams. And the therapies that helps a lot of people work through things help them by looking also not just at their awake self, but also on their dreaming self. In the same way, we know that if you just look at dream diaries, what people write uh, about their dreams when they wake up, you see that there are themes that emerge, and those themes even make sense in the context of the geography, the location, the cultural experiences. So if you look at the Western world and you ask people what the worst dreams you've had, you will hear a lot of dreams about being late for work and missing a meeting or being embarrassed in public or stuff like that. If you go to countries where the uh, amount of meetings that people have to attend are smaller, but the amount of uh, famine and um, troubles with beasts are higher, you would hear a lot more dreams about being attacked by animals or being uh, in a grave circumstances where you have no food. And this suggests that experiences in the outside world go to your dream. And because experiences in the outside world are shared by many people, you can expect to have a lot of dreams happen to a lot of people in a very similar narrative. Jung took it one step further and suggested that actually the dreams have a meaning that we can extract and go backwards. So we can ask people what you dreamt, and if we see that many people have a similar narrative or a similar story or a similar symbol in their dream, we can kind of figure out what 
the community goes to. So if any people, a lot of people in their dreams dream about being eaten by a beast, maybe there is a grave thing that happens right now to the entire community that affects them and the priest is a symbol of bad things happen. So he took that and tried to figure out in a bigger circumstances what happens to everyone. So uh, it, in this particular episode, one of the things that we looked at was a Japanese study that seemed to indicate that we could... Uh, using brain computer interfaces, look at imagery of what a person was dreaming. How close are we now to, to actually being able to witness another person's dreams? I think the study is 2013. So this is a study by a colleague of mine, Professor Yuki Kamitani from uh, Kyoto, Japan. And what they did is they did something remarkable, which is uh, they used the fact that in our dreams, we actually see content, that they're visuals, they're like movie, to actually extract the story by looking at the part of the brain that sees things. So if you look at the brain of a human, there are many, many components to it, and the back of the brain has a big part of it that actually corresponds to the images that you see. So if you see a house, there's a part of the brain that lights up. If you see a face, a different part lights up. If you see colors or shapes or objects or text, all of those uh, uh, things in the outside world have a correlate in the brain. So what Kamitani and his colleagues did was first mapped those. So they took you and they put you in the magnetic machine that kind of looks at your brain from the inside called the fMRI. And they mapped your brain and they found the part of the brain that corresponds to seeing faces and seeing objects and seeing houses and seeing familiar people and unfamiliar people and many, many things they could map that have a clear correlate in the brain. And then they had you go to sleep. And they waited for you to go to sleep and really get into deep sleep or dream states. And then they just looked at the same part of the brain and tried to identify what images you may see. And they saw that maybe the part of the brain that sees faces light up. And they said, okay, right now you see a face. And then immediately after, another part lights up and it's the part that says uh, it's a familiar thing. And you say, okay, maybe it's a face of someone that you know. And then a third thing happens and it lights up and maybe it's a landmark that you are familiar with that comes up. And just by that, they could kind of create a suggestion to what your narrative is. You're going with someone that you know to a place that you're familiar with. Maybe it's your house and you see two individuals and you talk to them. And then they would wake you up, ask you to tell them what your dream is, and compare how well their decoders were able to predict what your dream is. And because we can actually tell the decoders where they were wrong and where they were right, we can actually do better in the next iteration. So then you go to sleep again, and we wake you up after five minutes and ask you again. And the computer learns again what you did correctly and what you did incorrectly, and you go to sleep again. And after a few trials, you can actually get to a level where we can predict with a very high accuracy what is the visual that you see in your mind. Now, there is a lot of limitations to that. One is that uh, we don't really know if the visuals that you see correspond to the same visual that you interpret. So maybe you see a familiar person, but for you it's your dad, and I think it's your mom. But just the fact that we can actually get something and predict something about the content of your dream is also remarkable because we can actually give it to you and ask you to reflect on that. And that's something that most people don't have. Most of us just forget our dreams when we wake up. Now, a computer can tell you what it thinks you dreamt of, and this might kind of light the, the, you know, the, the, the light bulb in your brain and say, oh my God, yes, I definitely remember having seen this and that. So this is a way to give us access to something that our brain hides from us every night. So do you believe it will ever be possible for, for two minds to share the same dream, uh, in, in a sense similar to, uh, I guess, like mutual dreaming that is the, the, the idea that's sometimes tossed around? 
So here are the challenges in having two brains uh, share the same dream, but also we know how to solve those. So it becomes a technical problem rather than a, a philosophical one. So the challenges are that in order for you and I to share the same dream at the same time, we actually have to get to dream state at the same time. So the fact that we are asleep at the same time doesn't mean we're dreaming at the same time. There, there are different things to be asleep and to dream. And we know that each brain has its own kind of cycle, if you want. It takes you five minutes to get to a dream. It takes me 20 minutes. So in order to share a dream, we first have to just make sure that we're both dreaming at the same time. Already not easy, but that's something that we can actually hit if we just let you sleep enough time next to each other. We're going to, at some point, hit this moment. That's step one. Now, we want to actually not just have your dream happen to you and my dream to me, but somehow we want to control the content. And this we know we can do using a stimuli that actually penetrates the sleep and navigate the dream to some extent. So we know, for instance, that uh, if I spray water on you uh, when you're dreaming, it's likely if I wake you up afterwards, you will tell me that you have dreamt on something that has to do with water. You might have you might say something like, uh, I was by the ocean or I was seeing a waterfall, something like that. So here's one thing we can do. We also know that the smells manipulate dreams in certain directions. So we know that if you're asleep and I spray the smell of roses next to your nose, you will probably have a dream that has to do with something positive. It won't be roses that you dream of, but you will dream of something positive. And if I spray the smell of rotten eggs, you will dream of something negative. So we can kind of navigate the valence of your dream with smells. So the idea is that with touch and with sound and with uh, smells, we can actually shift your dreams in certain directions. Now, right now, it's not specific. Like, we kind of can move you to a positive or negative, to something that you know, something you don't know, but this is just technical now. Once we figure out that we can actually change your dream or make you think of something when I'm controlling it from the outside, it's just a matter of mapping it perfectly and finding what smells for you really make you think of your mom, what smells for me really make me think of my mom, and then we basically could have the two of us sleep side by side and spray the corresponding smell for the two of us. And now both of us go to the same idea of dreaming about our mothers. And if we really get to a level where we can control a lot of the narrative, mothers, fathers, people we know, people we don't like, people we like, people, uh, places we've been to, we can start imagining a world where we really have two people sleep there and each gets stimulus that makes them go to the same experience. So you and I go uh, spend the evening together and then we go to sleep. And instead of the evening just being over when we both retire into our old world, we kind of continue the, the experience together in our dream world. That's the science fiction yet uh, of this, but the reality is that we know that we're going in this direction because we know a lot of the components and now it's just a matter of finding the perfection and making it really a reality. Now, if you wanna go real science fiction, we can imagine that being one step above, which is instead of someone from the outside world just manipulating both of our brains, at the same time and making you dream of A, me dream of A, and just controlling for that being the same A, we can imagine that I'm looking at your brain and using the thing that Kamitani did, this guy that we mentioned in the previous study, by reading your brain and seeing that you right now see someone that you're familiar with, and I immediately spray the smell that makes you think of someone you're familiar with. And so I read one person's brain and write into the other person's brain and basically make the people share a dream by me just manipulating one after I read the other. That's quite science fiction right now, but the technology behind that is what we know right now. So it's just a matter of finding if we can actually do that or it's going to remain uh, theory without any proof.
So let's stick uh, to somewhere in between, like what the modern science is and the in the science fiction theory that you you just threw at us. What would a shared dream state, if we were using brain to brain interfaces, be like? Would it just be simply electrical signals going back and forth, or would it be more sensory oriented, like you were talking about touch, smell, sound? In the long in the long term, we might be able to actually really stimulate brains and activate them. Right now, we're not really good at that, and partially just because we don't have access to brains. So in order to stimulate a brain, you have to open one and stick electrodes inside, and there aren't that many people who are happy to do that. <laughs> so most of our work is coming with just uh, looking at the brains and kind of uh, imaging it. So, so looking at uh, what's coming out without touching anything. If you talk about animals like mice and rats, there are studies right now that actually do what I just mentioned. They read the brain of one rat and they, and they stimulate the brain of another one and they actually share content from one rat to another. This was done last year by a group in uh, Duke University in Brazil where they basically had one rat think of one thing and it activated the brain of another rat and they basically shared an experience across you know, Brazil and uh, North Carolina. But that's in the world of animals. In the world of humans, we aren't really uh, as invasive uh, as we are with animals, so we don't really get to change things in a very specific level in your brain. So the only thing we resort to is changing the environment and hoping that your dream is going to follow. So that's where we are right now. We basically activate your senses from the outside and hope that your brain is going to take you to the experience by itself. So we can change the temperature in the room, and we can change the smell in the room, and we can speak to you, and we can even flashlight into your eyes that are closed and hope that this is going to all make you dream of the right thing. So there are studies that show that you can actually uh, navigate your dream using smells. Uh, some smells make you dream of positive things, some of negative things, some make you dream of specific things that were actually uh, in your experience before. So some memories in your awake self have a smell attached to them. And if I spray that smell when you're asleep, it will take your brain to the same experience. So smells is one kind of big category of things that we play with right now. Sounds also work. So I can actually whisper in your ear some message and it will uh, penetrate your dream. We all know that, for instance, from your alarm clock. Oftentimes when you're asleep, the alarm buzzes and instead of just waking up, for the first few seconds, you kind of incorporate the alarm sound into your dream. And then at some point, it's just too much and you wake up. But we know that there's a level by which content can actually get into your sleep, penetrate it and, and become part of your dream rather than wake you up. And the same is true for touch. We know that if we touch you in certain locations at certain times, you will have an experience. The classical story is that if I make your legs move in your dream, you will kind of feel like you're falling. That's, that's a classical experience that people often report in their dreams. So all of those are just ways to change something that makes your brain hopefully take the content and change it accordingly. It's not specific enough now. We don't really know, you know, how to really make you go and imagine uh, how it was when you and your mom went to the shopping mall at age four, but we're getting there. So it becomes a technical problem rather than just a philosophical one. We actually are starting to map the possibilities and slowly getting to more and more accurate abilities when it comes to navigating your dream. All right, so there you have it. The collective unconscious, uh, the conjoined dream, both in uh, sort of mystical terms, uh, 
psychological terms and even hard science of the, the near and distant future. If you want more on these related topics, if you want to look up some of the episodes we discussed here, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the blog posts, the uh, the videos, uh, all the podcast episodes, and links out to our various social media accounts. Right. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. You can write us on all of those platforms. We love hearing from the audience, especially we'll listen to whatever dreams you're having. And if you want to write us about your dreams, Dreams the old-fashioned way, you can get us on Blow the Mind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank <laughs> you.